you know, an advisor is somebody you pay to be your friend. An investor right. is somebody who pays to be your friend. Being a founder is one of the most challenging positions, probably the most challenging position right. in tech. Anybody who tells you that VC is hard or harder or equivalently hard to a founder has never been a founder. Not everyone should be an entrepreneur. We're a little bit infatuated with founders. This founder created something from nothing and now they're a billionaire. That is not the reality for 99.9% .9 of founders. Sure. If yep. you want to win, you better up your game. In the 46 miles, between San Francisco and San Jose, there are nearly 2,000 VCs. There's right. 10 times more VCs in a 46 mile distance than there are in all of Canada. We just as Canadians, we spent too much time comparing to other folks. You know, it's like our national pastime. <laughs> we need to compare ourselves to Americans because America. I think the more we can just be confident standing on our own two feet and say, look, we're Canada MFers, you know, this is who we are and own that. Welcome back to another episode of the Generation Hustle Podcast. I'm Sherison alongside my co-host Amin, and this week we're continuing our VC series with another great guest. Episode 79 is with Chris Newman, general partner at Panache Ventures. Panache Ventures is Canada's most active seed stage venture capital fund. The fund does a founder's first philosophy, a commitment to diversity, and strategically co-invests with smart angel investors in seed stage funds. Chris has over 18 years of experience in Silicon Valley as an engineer, early startup employee, founder, and investor. He helped build the world's first 100 terabyte data warehouse, has invested in companies in more than 20 countries, and has mentored startups across six continents. In this episode, Amin speaks to Chris about his journey from tech to venture capital. He details his fundraising experiences as a founder, his advisory methods now as a VC, and how Panache is pushing the Canadian tech ecosystem ahead. This is a fun and insightful conversation that we hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, super excited to have Chris Newman on the show today, who is a partner at, I always say this wrong, is it Panache? Panache? Panache, Panache, probably depends okay. on yes. English or first people speaking pronounce, Canada. Yeah, yeah, people always pronounce it wrong, so I just wanted to get it right, but uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. First thing I want to start off with is kind of your early days. You know, a lot of VCs typically get asked, hey, what's the market doing? What's that doing? Let's understand who Chris is as a person and maybe kind of the influences of your early days into tech. So can you, can you walk us through that journey, uh, those early days? I know you worked in SF for quite a bit of time. So kind of take us uh, back in time there. Sure. Sounds good. Well, I was, I was born and raised in Vancouver, uh, so grew up here. Uh, probably was about 11 uh, when I got my first computer. Uh, that would have been in the you know late 80s, early 90s. Uh, you know these were the days of you know, Windows 3.1 and DOS and things that may not mean anything to to our younger audience. Uh, you know, didn't have email. We didn't even have the internet then. We had BBSs and, and other sorts of things. Uh, and I was hooked. Uh, so those days, because you didn't have the internet, it wasn't easy to figure out how to say program. You could just right. Google or, or go on Stack Overflow or whatever and say, okay, how do I learn to program? Uh, but learn to code using something called uh, Basic. Uh, and so you know, was doing you know very simple video games and things like that, uh, just learning how to build stuff uh, using software. Uh, and as time go went on, started to get interested in hardware as well. Uh, when I was 16, I think, uh, I started working at Future Shop, another place oh, okay. that you might not remember if, if uh, you're too young, uh, but I was selling computers. Uh, so I was selling software, selling computers, putting together computers, and just really diving into everything that, that took place in that world. Um, did my undergrad at, at Simon Fraser University, which was in computer science. Uh, so focusing on things like networking and emerging internet technologies. Uh, was involved in my first startup in, oh gosh, must have been 2000. Right. Uh, after, after spending time, I actually spent an internship at TELUS helping to uh, make sure that TELUS didn't fall down due to the Y2K bug. Right. Uh, so right. if anybody knows what that is, that's something else you can Google as a, as a time sink. Uh, and yeah, got involved in startups, uh, you know, graduated, and then the dot-com bubble burst. And so at that time, Vancouver had a very, very early beginnings of a tech scene and, and you know, all but got wiped out, uh, much like a lot of the of the early tech scene in, in kind of the, the early 2000s. Uh, and that's what took me down to California. So in uh, 2002, went down to California and did graduate school in computer science at Stanford University. Uh, so I was down there for a couple of years focusing on distributed computing. 
uh, graduated from there and spent a little bit of time, uh, probably a year and a half at Motorola back when that was a relevant okay, company. When, yeah. uh, when the Razer was the hottest uh, piece of hardware around, uh, worked on a project that involved a joint venture between Apple and uh, Motorola that predated oh, cool. the iPhone. Uh, if you Google it, it will you can find the most awkward uh you know, stage presence ever of Steve Jobs when he went to show off the, fu- the wonderful device and it completely didn't work. Okay. Uh, so, so, you know, <laughs> what happens when you take two totally different companies and put them together? Right. Uh, shortly after that, I left and joined a startup that some of my buddies from uh, Stanford were founding mm-hmm. uh, in the database world. And that was a company called Astrodata. I was the first engineer there. And that company was one of the companies that invented big data. And was there from uh, effectively the start of the company through to its acquisition in 2011 uh, by a U.S. company called Teradata, which is a big player in the warehouse space. Uh, in 2011, I left and then I founded a startup called Data Hero, mm-hmm. uh, which was a VC-backed startup uh, helping to invent cloud BI. Uh, and so the idea that we could do d- data analytics on cloud software. Uh, we sold that company in 2015. Uh, and after that, that's when I shifted over to uh, start my journey as a VC. Uh, right. So I joined a firm called 500 Startups, which some of you may be familiar with. It was one of the original accelerators. I joined that team in San Francisco to run their practice in data machine learning and AI uh, and helped to run the flagship accelerator specifically on the B2B and the enterprise side. So Got it. Okay. Uh, helping to run uh, courses on everything from how to do enterprise sales to setting up CRMs to the psychology of pricing uh, and why that matters. Uh, for that, I founded an organization called Commonwealth Ventures, which was designed to specifically help Canadian and UK founders more effectively raise capital from Silicon Valley VCs. And so we designed a variety of accelerators and different types of programs to help Canadian companies raise seed and Series A capital in the U.S., uh, and over the course of a couple of years, we helped, uh, in particular, Canadian companies raise over $100 million in U.S. seed and Series A financing. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, we did that for a while, then COVID hit. Uh, and at that point, I was already looking to come back to Canada. You know, I was okay. really excited about what was happening in the ecosystem up here with Commonwealth Ventures. We had had great success helping, you know, some incredible Canadian founders raise capital. And it became clear to me that there was a real opportunity to come back after what was almost 20 years in San Francisco mm-hmm. and put both feet into the Canadian ecosystem. So uh, early in the pandemic, uh, made the decision to move back to Canada and you know, really was, was interacting with a large number of VCs and founders and all sorts of folks around, around Canada to figure out what would be the best way for me to have impact in, in this ecosystem. Uh, and, you know, that's where the connection with the Panache came from. So uh, for those who don't know, the founders of Panache before Panache founded a firm called 500 Startups Canada. And so we had actually worked okay. together a number Got of it. years ago when I was part of the 500 Startups Accelerator in SF. And as you know, we were talking over time, they were looking to add some additional capabilities and in particular, a partner in Vancouver and we spent a couple of weeks together in Montreal and decided, you know, this is a great opportunity. Let's let's team up and, uh, you know, let's change the landscape. And so I joined Panache officially last September. Mm-hmm. Uh, they acquired Commonwealth Ventures, which was our accelerator platform in San Francisco. To this day, we continue to operate that. Okay. And all of the capabilities that we built at Commonwealth, we're now pointing at all of the portfolio companies in Canada. Uh, and so, for example, every three months, we run a very intense fundraising boot camp for all of the companies in Panache that are preparing to do their next round so that we can help them understand what can they do to raise the best downstream rounds possible. Yeah, I mean, that's that's quite the journey coming from, you know, going through school. One of the things I actually want to understand is like maybe you have some exposure and knowledge just dealing with founders who are technical today is what was schooling like from a you know computer science uh, perspective back then compared to maybe now because you you know oftentimes mm-hmm. you know I talk to my friends and they're like dude I just google a bunch of these things and I'll figure it out kind of thing whereas you alluded to that doesn't really exist so maybe can you kind of talk to that I, I, talk about that I've always found that kind of interesting yeah I mean it's a, it's a really good question um, you know I think the education around engineering and particularly software engineering has changed significantly over over the past 20 years um you know 
when I was in university, we had the very early days of the internet. My first email address was actually a, an sfu.ca email address, which I still have to this day. Uh, and so we were able to start learning a bit, but really what you were doing is you were going down to the bookstore and buying a giant you know, textbook mm -hmm. on how to program right. in whatever the language right. was. So we really didn't have the ability to just look up how do I solve this or how do I write code for this. Uh, and there was a lot more reasoning by first principles and, and frankly, a lot more banging your head trying to figure things out. Um, as a result of that, you tended to come out of, of a computer science education with a better understanding of the underpinnings and the theoreticals, mm, got it. but maybe not as many directly applicable skills. And so your first couple of years of working or your co-op internships was really trying to figure out how do I take this this uh, theoretical stuff that I learned in school and how do I actually make use of it? Um, now, nowadays, and, and by the way, this has been a, a debate in, in academia, uh, particularly going well beyond that, which is what is the balance between theoretical and mm -hmm. academic and industry? Um, and in, in the late 90s, uh, you know, early 2000s, very much there was a, a belief that, well, if you're spending too much time on what industry wants, you're somehow uh, you know, desecrating the purity uh, of, of the yeah. education. Um, however, leading universities were already doing that. So when I was at Stanford, you know, Stanford is, is one of the premier education institutions on the planet, but they had courses. If you wanted to learn to program in C sharp, you could learn to program in C sharp. And if you want to do JavaScript, they had that. And so they were figuring out how to mix the, the theoretical aspects of like understanding the science of computer science with, okay, we also need to make sure that these these kids can get, you know, jobs when they come yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what you saw after that really was the birth of coding boot camps, right? And, and code academies, which which we didn't see before. It was, it was always this idea that, you know, if you didn't have a computer science degree, you couldn't possibly be productive as a programmer. And in those days, if you didn't have a degree, it was very hard to get a job. There was this idea that you... Um, you know, you, you had a ceiling because you didn't understand uh, the mm. theory. You wouldn't be able to solve the harder problems. Um, and I think what we've learned since then is for a large um, percentage of programming jobs, that theoretical knowledge actually isn't that necessary. You know, there's still like, if you want to go and you want to be building AI and you want to be doing some of this really deeper tech stuff, you absolutely still need to have the theoretical yeah, sure. foundation. But if you want to be, I don't know, programming video games or your typical like B2B SaaS app, um, that, that deep, deep theory isn't as important as it used to be. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I think uh, even up until maybe when I graduated in 2015, there was a lot of, again, I'm not a, com a comp sci major, but even in the business world, a lot of emphasis was based on theory. Whereas now it's more so, hey, what are you doing as a side hustle? What are you doing as a project? Uh, let me sh uh, show me what you've executed on. And I think a lot of it's going towards that. So I find that very interesting. Uh, and maybe even tapping into that, I'd love to hear maybe how the tech environment that you grew up in kind of differs from today. I know we have, there's obviously, we can go into a rabbit hole about this, but um, maybe anything specific or kind of, kind of out there that you kind of feel like is a major transformation from the 2000s to right now. Yeah, I would I would highlight two things, right? I mean, obviously, an incredible amount has, has changed in the past 20 years. Um, first and foremost, the availability of virtual compute power, right? So, you know, when we did Astrodata, Astrodata raised, I think it was about a million US was, was the, the initial round we did. And we probably spent 800,000 on that building servers, so we literally were sitting in a back room ordering and putting together dozens and dozens and dozens of physical servers before we could even start making the software, right? Nowadays, you want to do something on a distributed computing panel? Cool. You, you know, go into Amazon, you spin up some, some EC2 instances, and you're off to the races, right? And you know, on top of that, all of the distributed frameworks for everything from AI to cloud storage to you know, whatever you want is available turnkey. And, and that's just massive because it's lowered the bar incredibly 
to get started with any kind of technical, at least from a software standpoint, right. uh, product, right? Because I don't have to raise a significant amount of capital. I can get the infrastructure for, you know, potentially a couple hundred bucks. And if I've got the skills, I can build something. I can build a prototype or an MVP that then I can go out to folks and say, hey, look, this thing works at least at a small scale. And in some cases, I can just start generating revenue, right? You know, the, the idea of bootstrapped tech companies really wasn't feasible in those days because the amount okay. of capital to bootstrap yeah, yeah, yeah. anything was quite incredible. Uh, you know, that's that's one piece that's changed. And the second piece is, is just the global connectivity. You know, the fact that I can build a company where I'm sitting in Vancouver, you're sitting in Toronto, we've got someone else in, uh, you know, the Middle East, we've got someone in Asia, we've got somebody in you know Australia, and we can work together on a shared code base in the cloud, and we can collaborate with things like Notion, and we can, for all intents and purposes, operate a fully functional um, company with everyone anywhere. Um, you know, and, and when I was in Motorola, by contrast, uh, you know, we had a, a global team. So I was in, in Santa Clara, California. We had people in Brazil. We had people in Russia, Australia, India. There were no shared collaboration tools. So we had to do these crazy you know, global uh, conference <laughs> calls where oh, okay. no matter when the call was, it was the middle of the night for somebody, right? Oh, <laughs> Just got it. Suck. Okay. 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 Man, that, that must be an evolution in terms of how things have kind of, you know, evolved over time. And, you know, I've, I work at a remote company now and we have a few people all over the place, but there's no instances where we all have to hop on a call and, you know, somebody's at some, it might be 7 p.m. for someone, uh, you know, 2 p.m. somewhere for someone else. It's all like, you know, just get to it. I, I think work-life balance, I guess, has evolved over mm -hmm. time to compound to that. Um, so I, I find that very interesting and, you know, that experience, I've never obviously experienced that you kind of having to deal with, you know, global teams, but in a completely different way. Um, it's, it's cool to see how tech has evolved and enabled such transformation in organization. And then that's kind of why I'm in the space. It's always cool to see evolution and tech as a catalyst for all of that. Um, and maybe a tangent here is I just had to ask you about this story. What's the story behind that lumberjack uh, profile picture that you have? <laughs> it's a great story. So at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, a group of us, uh, VCs and, and other folks from the Valley, were, were trying to figure out how we could help founders. Um, because in those times, you know, if you guys remember, for, particularly for folks in tech, uh, you know, the, the second quarter of, of um, 2020 was was pretty scary for a lot of people, right? We didn't know what was going to happen with the market. We certainly didn't know what was going on with, with health. Um, but yet there were companies that were still trying to figure out, like, how do we make payroll? We need to raise capital, fundraising, and these things were still happening. And so what we decided to do is we decided to do a virtual show to help uh, founders get feedback on pitch decks. Uh, most founders had never pitched uh, virtually most people were used to either in-person conversations or demo day types. Uh, and so we actually uh, created a, a digital show called Silicon Valley Squares. Okay. Uh, and it was a okay. little bit in the model of Hollywood Squares, but not necessarily a game show. And I was the host. And so okay. that, uh, we, we embraced some stereotypes of all of us. Uh, and I had the Canadian uh, stereotype. Okay, got it. And so I hosted the show, which had uh, about a dozen VCs from all over the world. Uh, and every episode, we'd have three founders come in, they pitch, they get feedback from the VCs, and other folks could watch to learn from those best practices. And so we did that for probably a good six months. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, a lot of other things came in and things started to move back to uh, a little bit of normalcy. And we decided to sunset that program. But uh, that was actually <laughs> a, a photo that came from from that program, which, you know, I, I leaned into as, as my uh, my profile photo. Yeah, just sticking to your roots, the lumberjack had to come out. It's a uh, it's a funny stereotype for sure for Canadians. Maybe mm -hmm. you could have had a bottle of maple syrup while you're at it, but you know, I, I believe one of those the, things. the character, uh, as as I recall, because we had cartoons done for for sort of the the intro and whatnot. I believe mine had a hockey stick and a bottle of maple syrup. Okay, okay, fair enough. So, okay, we're 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 staying true to uh, how we are as Canadians. We'll we'll take all the stereotypes. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so we know about 
Chris now, one thing I obviously want to go into is Chris the entrepreneur, because you alluded to the fact that you had built out a company called Data Hero and it eventually got acquired. Um, the things I want to specifically talk about is maybe how the how you went through the fundraising process back then, because it's obviously evolved over time as you know time goes by. But uh, can you walk us through how you went through that fundraise cycle and how you were able to convince uh, investors on Data Hero? especially with data being such an early kind of industry to get into? Yeah. So the first thing I'll start off by saying is that my experience fundraising was not a normal one. And the reason why is that the company that I was at previously, Astrodata, had recently come off an exit of of, uh, over $300 million, which in those days was quite large. It was also a company that within the tech ecosystem was known to have had some ups and downs along the way. Got it. Uh, And so as a result of that, the early employees at at Astrodata, the folks who stayed there throughout the the challenges of that, because we went through the 2008-2009 recession, which was quite quite impactful for enterprise uh, businesses. We had a very strong reputation amongst the the industry. And so as a result of that, I could effectively get a meeting with any VC I wanted to in the Valley. And that's not normal for most first-time entrepreneurs. So that was a significant advantage that I had. Okay. So the fact that we were coming out of this company that, as I said, helped to invent big data, I was the first engineer at the company and was coming to pitch another data company. Uh, right. you know, we got we got the red the red velvet uh, treatment yeah, into the credibility into behind the person. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and to give you guys a sense of of that alumni, right? To date, the first you know twenty or so employees of that company have created uh, companies subsequently worth over ten billion dollars. Oh, so wow. there's so you guys have I your own little four mafia. four unicorns, one public yeah. company, several VC firms a number of companies worth over half a billion dollars, right? So it was a very kind of uh, high pedigreed group of folks. And we all benefited from, you know, the, the halo of, of the company that we were previously at in terms of, in terms of that. Um, so, so I'll start off that by saying that that mm-hmm. is not normal, right? For most founders, it is a much more difficult uh, challenge to get the attention of, of VCs. And, and frankly, that's why I spend a lot of time coaching founders on how right. to do just that. Yeah. Um, you know, we had a relatively easy time fundraising because we were doing something that was quite clearly needed. It was looking ahead of where the market was going. We had the experience with the exact customers we were selling into and we had a team that made sense. So, you know, we were able to credibly come in and say, look, you know, here's all these Fortune 500s we were selling to at Data Hero. Or, sorry, at Astrodata. Yeah. Every single one of them has this problem. Here's, you know, a bunch of people who, if you call them, will, will say, I have this problem. And if somebody solves this, we will buy that. And here's our prototype, our MVP. Here's the team that can build that. You know, we really had a complete story there. Uh, and then what we did, which is a strategy that I recommend for for anyone who's fundraising in a, let's call it a slightly more technical okay. or more competitive um, market, is we solicited uh, angel investments from a number of experts in the space, both on the technical and the competitive side. Uh, so we had you know, the founders of Astrodata in there. Uh, we had a, a guy named Dave Kellogg, who's once one of the most respected, um, you know, enterprise uh, marketers on the planet, and and was multiple time CEO, was you know GM at, at Salesforce, and very high pedigree. Okay. Uh, yeah. With you know, Jerry Newman, who's one of the top uh, angel investors in New York, and a number of these other folks with very relevant backgrounds. So when you provide that to a VC, you know, a lot of founders say, okay, well, you know, I'm gonna I'm going to have this nice uh, slide of advisors, right? We see a lot of startups that have this great yeah. advisor slide, but that doesn't show quite as well as you think it does. Because in, mm-hmm. in my view, you know, an advisor is somebody you pay to be your friend. Right. An investor right. is somebody who pays to be your friend. Right. Right. So yeah. when you're talking about people who are experts in your space, the fact that they invested in our company 
didn't matter what that amount was. It could have been 10,000 or 20,000 or whatever. When you show that to VCs, they go, wow, people who are much more experienced in this space than I am have put their own personal money in there. Okay. That's a really interesting thing. And that helped to, to shortcut the diligence. Right. Some form of validation behind exactly what you're building, especially for maybe a VC who didn't understand the space at the time or some of the technicalities. Exactly. And so we, we came to the table when we went to fundraise really with a pretty stacked portfolio, which is here's all the evidence supporting our hypothesis. And even though we're super early, here's a bunch of other people in this space who think we're onto something. Um, And that just provided a very, very compelling, um, you know, memoranda offering, whatever you want to call it. uh, When we did go to, to the pre-seed VCs that we talked to. Got it. Got it. No, that makes total sense to me. Um, One thing I'd love to ask you is what was the most challenging part of being a founder? You're a VC now, but you were a founder before. So what was the most challenging part? I, 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 you know, we could spend the next hour talking about all the the challenging parts. Um, You know, being, being a founder is one of the most challenging positions, probably the most challenging position in tech. Uh, You know, anybody who tells you that VC is hard or harder or equivalently hard to a founder has never been a founder. Um, You know, as a founder, you have everything on your shoulders and that's everything from the financial acumen that is the business. If you're making sales or not making sales, if the product works or doesn't work, if you're hiring the right people, um, you know, when people have interpersonal issues or they have personal issues, or, you know, we had some situations where people had had some mental health issues. You know, there's a lot of, of curveballs that are constantly you know being thrown at you. Right. And, and ultimately you need to fix it or you need to help facilitate, you know, a solution or you need to manage that situation. Um, you know, and so being a founder, uh, or, or any type of, you know, not, not even tech, being a business owner takes a certain type of personality where you are comfortable with a level of stress, comfortable with a level of uncertainty and, you know, nimble enough, I guess, to, to deal with, uh, an experience that is not linear and it's constantly dealing with, with new challenges and unexpected situations. Yeah, and we'll definitely get to that for sure in terms of like the construction of why you invest in certain founders. I think that's mm-hmm. very important. There are certain traits that I feel just through pattern recognition over time, there are specific traits that keep on showing up. And we'll, we'll get to that for sure. Um, one of the things, this is how I found you originally, is you had a criticism of your own pitch deck. Um, yep. And it was pretty deep and insightful. And so, you know, kind of walk us through that and say, hey, what were the highlights? Maybe what were the losses? Um, and you even said, I may have not invested in my company if I were a VC, which I found oh, really yeah. interesting. I, I, I probably would not have invested in my own yeah. company uh, yeah. if all I knew of it was was that pitch deck. So one of the things, that, and, and you know, this was a bit of a funny story. You know, the, the pitch deck just sort of popped up in, in you know my inbox a number of weeks ago and was looking at it and going, wow, you know, this pitch deck kind of sucked. <laughs> You know, and, and as I was replaying that particular, and that was our seed fundraise. Uh, so that was the one that came after, uh, and maybe I should contrast the, the two. Um, so I mentioned that our first fundraising effort was was fairly smooth. We didn't actually have a pitch deck for that fundraise. We had no ah, pitch okay. deck. We walked in with effectively a one-pager, a list of, of alpha users, and a prototype. And, you know, a very impressive list of of investors. And so um, our pitch was very product centric. It was very conversational. Uh, You know, we had the benefit of being able to to get those incredibly warm intros into VCs. So we didn't have to create a, a pitch deck to give to somebody to convince them to take a meeting with us. Right. You know, we were able to do things in a, in a much more uh, streamlined way. When it came to our next round, at that point, hey, the business exists, right? Yeah. You know, there's there's revenue, there's customers, um, and we had to create uh, you know a pitch deck as, as anyone did, and this was probably 2013, so this is, is nine okay. years ago. Yeah. In those days, there were relatively few examples of pitch decks publicly available, right? There were a few, but uh, you know, not enough that you could really calibrate whether you were copying the right parts of it. Okay, got it. You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
And so the, the idea, like nowadays, it's fairly easy to get templates. Like Y Combinator has a template. Here's a, here's a Series A template for your pitch deck. Just fill in the blanks, right? And, and we've sort of standardized what we expect of those things. So it's very much changed that process. Uh, but in ours, we you know, were doing, doing the best we could. And, and the, uh, the blog post kind of was, was something I wrote uh, you know, a month or so ago that was, okay, what would, what would you know, 2022 VC Chris think of 2013 founder Chris's pitch deck? And there were some things that were great. We did a really good job of explaining the problem. We did a really good job of explaining the market opportunity. We did a great job of explaining why we had the correct founding team to do that. Uh, what we did absolutely atrociously was providing supporting evidence of early traction. And so we had a product in the market. It was still early. We didn't have numbers. We didn't show any of the amazing things we had learned about users, right? So we we had, I think at that point, we had started monetizing maybe a month or two earlier. Okay. Right? So our revenue okay. numbers were, were very decimal. Yeah. Yeah. But we had like nine months of data of alpha users on retention, on what they were using, on that. And we just didn't include any of that. Um, you know, it, it didn't dawn on us, uh, very, very frankly. And so we had all of this data that we kept in uh, a data room or we sort of had it set aside. We're like, okay, we'll provide this as supporting information later. And it never dawned on us that if we didn't, uh, you know, provide that information up front, we just wouldn't get the meeting, right? Yeah, or we wouldn't get the second For sure, meeting. for sure. And so, you know, now I look at it and go, wow, we had all of this information that would have provided a really compelling supporting case. And we just didn't use it. We didn't include it in that deck. Uh, and so there were some mistakes like that that I can look back on. And I can, with supreme confidence, say that, you know, we made some big mistakes. And, and at the end of the day, that round ended up being led by our previous round investor, um, who, when we raised from them, uh, and this is sort of a side note for founders, uh, when you raise your first round, it's really important that you ask investors, how do you think about the next round? Yeah. Um, yeah. In our case, we knew even at the pre-seed that there was a high likelihood we would not have a public product in 18 months because what we were building was really, really complicated. And so one of the conversations, one thing we did right was we spoke to our pre-seed investors and said, okay, you know, we are looking for an investor that will not only lead this round, but will lead the next round because we think there's a high likelihood that we don't get the product out to the market. And that was one of the reasons why we chose the investors we did is we knew that they had the capacity and the willingness to lead that subsequent round. Um, and at the end of the day, when we, you know, anyways, went out to market and, uh, you know, fundraised, we didn't get the term sheets we were looking for. So we closed off the round and we went back to our original investors and said, okay, let's keep going. Uh, and, you know, we had that ability to do that because we had some, some really hard conversations and direct conversations uh, before signing a term sheet for for that very first round. Yeah, and I think that's such an important uh, piece of advice. There is uh, a lot of the founders I sometimes talk to is I'm like, you're going into a marriage with a VC or an investor and make sure you keep that relationship strong and communicate what's going on. Um, and to your point, like making sure that, hey, like you, we want you to participate in the next round. Is that something you might be looking for? You know, are you actively wanting to participate? And understanding their fund dynamics as well is very important um, mm -hmm. as a founder. So I think that's a very important point to make because uh, oftentimes, you know, founders are like, yeah, we raise money. We'll just look for the next uh, round, maybe in the next seven, eight months or whatever it is. And I guess they, you kind of could have got away with it the last like four or five years with the environment that we were in. But now it's getting even tougher and tougher and tougher. So um, let's like maybe focus on this macro environment. What would mm -hmm. your best piece of advice be for founder in this environment uh, to raise funds? Be cynical. Um, and I don't mean, you know, that you're, you're not going to make it or anything like that. But, you know, the, my, my mantra that I've always had as a, as a founder and, and sort of one of the things I, I believe in in life is to hope for the best and plan for the worst. And if you do both of those things, particularly as a founder, then you're in a good position. What are you going to do if you don't get the next round? What are you going to do if you don't get the term sheet? What are you going to do if nobody you know, believes your story or whatever the case may be, right? The customer cancels, you don't sign this big deal. Doesn't mean you are paranoid or focused on it, but if you always know what that backup plan is, then that gives you power to go harder at the best case scenario. You have a confidence. 
Um, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you sort of a personal story that, that underscores that. Um, when I was uh, at Motorola, and this was yep. kind of 2005, um, Apple was recruiting a number of people that were coworkers of mine to form the team that actually created the first iPhone. And so I was taking a serious look at, do I join Apple? And these friends of mine from college, uh, from, from grad school, I'm sorry, said, hey, we're doing this startup. Do you want to join? And so I had a very two different paths, oh, right? right. Okay. Join Apple and be a part of what's probably going to be a world-changing company, right? Or join these three guys who I hung out with and had beers with at, at university. And ultimately, I looked at it and I said, okay, what's, what's the, the best case scenario? Of, of joining uh, this startup. Well, the best case scenario is these were three of literally the smartest people I ever met. You know, we could create something that would be amazing and, you know, who knows what the, the, the ceiling is. And I'll tell you right now, what ended up happening was far beyond what any of us could have right. expected. Way yeah. beyond. But then I looked at the, the worst case scenario. Okay, worst case scenario. In a year, the company runs out of money. Everyone is, who was a part of that team, first eight employees were all immigrants. So okay. we all get kicked out because we don't have work visas anymore. Uh, I come back to Canada and I have spent the last year working with some of the smartest people I ever know. I was like, okay, cool. So I went in eyes open to joining that startup, fully comfortable that there was a version of the future where the company would totally implode and I'd have to move back to Vancouver. And I was cool with that. And so if you understand that in a more challenging environment like this, and say, okay, let's assume that we're not able to secure that next round of funding. What do we do next? And you've thought through that. And you, you know, it may not be what you want to do, but you understand what your next moves are, whether those are, you know, um, cutting costs, cutting staff, or shutting down the company or something completely different. You've at least thought through that scenario and become comfortable with it, that it's not as scary. And that is empowering to actually go after those more, more risky situations. Right. Uh, and I think now, you know, you have to go into this fundraising environment, assuming that the money might not be there or the amount of money or the terms you want. And, you know, maybe in, uh, in three months, this turns out to be a blip in the road and that's great. But if you thought through it, you know, you're in a better position to begin with. Yeah. Let me ask you a philosophical question here around risk and risk taking in general. Um, I believe you taking the risk allowed you to be in the position that you are today. And, mm -hmm. you know, we have oftentimes conversations with individuals who are on the fence of trying to take the leap into, you know, building that business or kind of starting that startup or whatever it is. What would your best piece of advice be for those individuals and maybe your experience through risk and where it's allowed you to go? It's a good question. Um, I think risk and the interpretation of risk is a very personal thing. It comes from our view of the world. And that view in the world is impacted from everything from just how we were raised to the you know, socioeconomic realities that we live in. Um, there are many people who might like to take risks that simply can't because of yeah. the circumstances they're in. And that's a reality. Um, I was empowered to take risks, both as a result of my upbringing and as a result of the safety I had from having some you know, middle upper class parents. Mm. Um, you know, My worst case scenario was move back in with my parents and figure the rest out, which you know, maybe that's a little humbling, but that's not that bad. Right. Right. A lot of yeah. people don't have that ability. Yeah. Um, my tolerance for risk, you know, my, my uh, grandparents and my father were, were all immigrants and they came to Canada and they built something from nothing. Yeah. And, you know, that was a very deep influence in, in my upbringing was, hey, try stuff, you know, do things, take, take those chances. Uh, and the message that I had growing up was take chances. And if it goes wrong, we got you. Yeah. Right. But that's an incredibly, incredibly privileged position to be in. Uh, and so I, I think it's, it's, it's a fine line between wanting to encourage people to take risks and being a little bit um, condescending is the wrong word, but presumptuous in, in assuming that they are, even if they want to. Care. Right. 
I do think what we're doing right now in terms of at the elementary school and the high school level, you know, including entrepreneurship, including some of these, these concepts in the formative years of, of kids are, are fascinating and, and incredibly important. Um, you know, when I was in California, I, uh, you know, worked with some schools and I judged uh, sixth grade business plan competitions. Uh, and here, you know, uh, there's a program up here in, in British Columbia for second graders to create their own businesses ah, that I'm okay, you know, cool. a part of. And so yeah, yeah. just the fact that they're being exposed to these ideas, I think is important. Um, there's a, a professor friend of mine at Columbia who teaches entrepreneurship in the engineering department there. Okay. And his goal in creating what is now a really important class at Columbia University was simply to give engineers permission to take risks. You know, that's how, how deeply yeah. seated it is in, in some aspects, that this notion of risk averseness. Uh, but at the end of the day, and I'll sort of close this off by saying, not everyone should be an entrepreneur. That's yeah. not bad. You know, yeah. I think we're in this, this world where we we're a little bit infatuated with founders. You know, yep. okay, this founder created something from nothing and now they're a billionaire. Yeah. Right. That is not the reality for 99.9% of founders. Sure. Yeah. And at the same time, there's a lot of people who are perfectly happy and more than happy being a part of something bigger, you know, not being the person who has that personal responsibility. And, and, you know, my, my advice to, to uh, you know, students and, and people earlier in their career is I think everyone should try working for, you know, one internship or one job at a startup and one internship or one job at a big company. And from then on, do what makes the most sense for you. Yeah, no, I think that's a powerful message. And for sure, I think creating opportunity is going to maybe cascade and give them a way to kind of see through a different lens. I think, you know, enabling them to that um, and creating programs specifically around that, I think will be powerful. Uh, but moving on and kind of like talking about the landscape in Canada for BC versus US, um, you've been in both now. But uh, what I'd love to understand is, could you kind of maybe describe the differences between the North and the South and how, you know, we maybe are lagging behind, but now that we're narrowing the gap and how we're narrowing the gap. So I'm going to say something a little, a little maybe controversial with this, which is I think if we're contemplating narrowing a gap with the U S we're wasting time on the wrong thing. Hmm. Silicon Valley is globally unique. And I'm not talking about the US, I'm talking specifically Silicon Valley. It is the only ecosystem on the planet where investors see startups from all over the world and where startups from all over the world go to raise money. If you think about a Canadian startup, you raise money in Canada or you raise money in Silicon Valley, maybe New York. You don't go to Germany to raise money or Australia to raise money or, you know, Southeast Asia, right? Unless you happen to have customers there. It is Silicon Valley. From an investor perspective, as a Canadian investor, typical Canadian investor, I'm only investing in Canadian companies, which means I only ever see Canadian companies. Right. What that means is that my investing is a little bit like the Olympics, where I could invest in the best company in Canada and they might not make the podium. Yeah. Right. So if you think about the way the Olympics works, the best in Canada in some sport like hockey, they're going for gold every, every four years, but the best in a lot of sports in Canada probably flame out in the very first qualifier. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and the same analogy. is true of yeah. the same is true of startups. So there is no ecosystem in the world that should compare itself to Silicon Valley because that is a unique thing. In fact, the better comparisons are peer ecosystems. Like how is Canada doing relative to the UK? Those are two ecosystems that are very similar. Okay. If we think about what we need to do here, we can and should do a better job educating founders on how to navigate Canada and the US differently, which is what we do a lot at Panache now. Because fundraising, for example, is fundamentally different there. Helping them to understand the best practices that are common knowledge there, but maybe not in Canada. And, you know, doing a better job at identifying and supporting those high growth companies, right? So if, if there's another analogy, if you think about hockey, right? 
why is Canada the best country in the world at hockey? It's not because we're the best natural athletes. It's because at every stage of the development from five-year-old to the NHL, the infrastructure knows how to identify those great players and how to facilitate them getting into the next level. And so we have this system that goes all the way from, you know, four and five-year-olds straight into, you know, pick your, pick your favorite uh, uh, NHL arena and we can help people get there. Silicon Valley is the only place that really has that nailed in the world, right? In Canada, we still don't have enough pre-seed funding. Yeah. You know, we, we sometimes hear people say, ah, you know, we've got enough VCs, we've got enough investors. That's sort of like saying, hey, you know what, we've got enough hockey teams so that every kid in Canada can play hockey. Yeah. But two thirds of the coaches show up carrying baseball bats. Right. Right. Like we really don't have enough sophisticated yeah. capital. Yeah. We are, as an ecosystem, are over-reliant on angel investors. Uh, we are lucky that in Canada, we have some absolutely incredible angel investors coast to coast that are filling gaps that should be taken by pre-seed investors, but we just don't have that many pre-seed VCs. And so there's more that we can do on the financing side. Uh, we're also seeing some more natural competition come in, which is I think good for everyone, right? Yeah. We're seeing with, with COVID in particular, more American investors coming in and going after pre-seed companies and going after seed companies. Um, and you'll hear some people say, oh, that's not good. You know, the Americans, this, that, and the other. I look at it as competitive competition, Yeah. right? If yep. you want to win, you better up your game. And, and as a Canadian VC, my competition isn't other Canadian VCs. My competition comes from Palo Alto in San Francisco. That's what I'm scared of, right? Uh, you know, there's some great Canadian VCs, but there's currently enough deals in Canada that all of the Canadian VCs could have deals. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, as a, as a, as a league, you know, for lack of a better <laughs> term, right. We've got to up our game and we've got to right. invite more VCs in and we've got to have more competition, particularly at the early stages so that we're, we're, you know, keeping, keeping our game at its top. Right. And you feel like competition creates innovation and creates urgency to create environments to promote, say, new VC programs or new VCs to be born and stuff like that. Absolutely. You know, in, in the 46 miles between San Francisco and San Jose, there are nearly 2000 VCs. Wow. Okay. 2000. There's 10 times more VCs in a 46 mile distance than there are in all of Canada. And there aren't that many deals. So they're all having to fight in back alley brawls to you know get uh, get these deals and that's why silicon valley vcs have developed a lot of capabilities that that are hard for for international vcs to understand that's why they can do deals so fast yeah that's why they can really quickly go from first meeting to decision with conviction and by the way more research than the majority of vcs around the world whereas vcs everywhere else look at it and be like ah they must they must have skipped steps they must have just like bought into the FOMO. Right. It's like, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, they've learned to operate, you know, at a, on a different scale. You know, it's not like you you show up from, from your back alley hockey league and, and roll into an NHL arena and be like, ah, you know, you guys don't know yeah. what you're doing. Right. No, 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 that totally makes sense. And I love the hockey analogy kind of sticking true again to the roots. But um, do you feel like that's also a reason why Canada has not been able to produce a multiple sustaining unicorns? Um, is it because of the infrastructure play or that maybe something outside of that ge- geography I, and, and yeah, I, mean, I, I think there's a, there's a couple of things going on there. I think one of them that, that Canadians have to be comfortable with is we're not that big of a country, yeah. you know? And so to expect anything comparable to what happens in Silicon Valley or what happens in a larger country, like, like the UK is, is not giving enough credit to the simple numbers, right? You know, we are, we are a country of, of, you know, 35 or so million people. And when you sort of boil down what that means in terms of tech startups, the number of, use my, my analogy again, the number of shots on goal that we're taking is a fraction of what's happening in the U.S. Yeah. And, and that's not a criticism. It's just the wrong metric. It's the, it's the apples to oranges metric. Uh, and so, you know, we should look at things like, okay, what percent of entrepreneurs are getting funded? 
you know, of entrepreneurs that raise, let's say, pre-seed capital, what percentage raise Series A, Series B? How do they progress through? And, you know, I think focusing on, on the whole numbers are, are not necessarily the right thing to look at. Um, it is important to have some of those exits because those exits do provide resources, both financial and right. experiential that flow into the market. Right. And we're starting to see that flywheel. We've definitely seen it in the, in the you know, greater Toronto area. We're starting to see it a little bit in Vancouver. Um, you know, we're seeing it a bit in other places, but you're, you're never going to get the, the comparison of density yeah. that you get in, in Silicon Valley. It's just never going to exist anywhere else. Uh, and so I think just trying to understand that, because we've got a lot of people in this country who are doing amazing things to push the ecosystem forward. Um, you know, where we are as a country right now is built on the shoulders of people and organizations from coast to coast that have been doing really hard work for 20 plus years. And folks, you know, who are coming back into the ecosystem and, and you know, reinforcing that ecosystem. So we're definitely moving in the right direction. I think we just as Canadians, we spent too much time comparing to other folks. Yeah. You know, it's like our national pastime. <laughs> you know, like we need to compare ourselves to Americans because America. And, right. you know, I think the more we can just be confident standing on our own two feet and say, look, we're Canada MFers. You know, this is who we are and own that and, and be the best Canada instead of worrying about, you know, how we relate to, to big brother America. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I and I, that's all true because like I recently went to SF and then the number one question I get is, so how's the Toronto uh, tech e ecosystem doing? I'm like, it's unique in and of itself. I'm like, you know, we have XYZ going on and they're like, oh, do you guys have any new unicorns and stuff like that coming out and all that? I get all these like, questions where like in Silicon Valley, this is just a normal discussion every day. It's like, oh, there yeah. is a hundred million. I mean, there's multiple new unicorns yeah. a week there. Yeah, right? yeah. And so... it's just like, I, I always tell them, no, like there's not much, like there's obviously a few that maybe pop up every quarter, uh, but no, it's not like a weekly thing where we're raising $200 million for a random startup here and there. It's not the ecosystem. And to your point, we haven't developed the infrastructure yet to maybe sustain and support that level of investment. Um, and that kind of brings me to my next point as a catalyst, Panache is, you know, one of Canada's leading seed stage or early stage uh, investment firms. And so could you kind of walk us through their investment thesis mm -hmm. and maybe the critical ingredients you are looking for in a potential company to invest in or founder to invest in? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the team at Panache, we're all ex-entrepreneurs. We're all ex-founders. We are unapologetically pre-seed VCs. That is where we play. That's where we believe we can have impact. And, and our goal as a firm is to provide a very credible early stage option to founders all across Canada. We've invested in companies from Victoria on the West Coast to St. John's, Newfoundland on the East Coast and everywhere in between. Uh, and we're really Canada's only national pre-seed fund. Um, we believe to my comment on numbers earlier, that if we tie the entire population of Canada together and start operating on that level, instead of what we've done historically, which is regional funds, that we can bring together the numbers and the quantity of founders to really have a, a, a massive impact. Right. Um, with education, we spend a lot of time trying to help those founders understand what do you have to do to take your company to the next level? whether that is in Canada, the U.S., or somewhere else. Uh, and you know, the way in which we do that is, is definitely unique in this country. And it takes a lot of best practices from what happens in Silicon Valley, where I continue to spend a pretty significant amount of my time. Um, when it comes to what we're looking for for founders, the number one thing we're looking at is velocity. And what I mean by that is that the mindset we have the question we're asking every founder we meet is, are you going to end up on the podium? Are you going to be one of the three, four, five left standing globally in your market, in the market you're going after? We know historically that in winner take most markets where there's, you know, let's say four or five companies uh, at the end of the day, 
three to four of those companies come from America every yeah. single time. Right. And so if there's only one or two companies in the entire rest of the world that is going to be a finalist in this market, are you going to be one of them? And that boils down to ambition, goals, uh, and really that velocity that you're executing. You know, I mentioned earlier that I have a number of friends who founded uh, unicorns in the Valley. I've worked in a number of those companies. I know how fast they're going. I know how driven they are. I know all of the advantages they have by being in that ecosystem. So I'm looking at every Canadian founder I meet going, okay, I know who you're going up against. Convince me you can beat them, right? And a lot of them can't. That's just not the same culture we have here. Yeah. You know, I live in Vancouver, which is a, a credible city. It's also a lifestyle city. You know, <laughs> yeah. and I meet a lot of founders who, you know, they, they, they're getting that work-life balance, but you mm. don't create unicorns working nine to five. Right. And I know the hours and the effort that, that folks in, in the Valley and elsewhere are going into. So I need to see not, not silly hustle, not like yeah. you know, that, that sort of ridiculous culture of all work all the time. But how fast are you iterating? How fast are you taking in new information? Are you doing things in parallel? Are you validating your customers through whatever manner at the same time you're building a product? Or are you doing one foot in front of the other all the time? Got it. Um, you know, that we look at obsession, passion. Yeah. Why is this problem important to you? Why are you going to be doing this in five, six, seven, eight seven years, years. Yeah. when you're exhausted and you are really, really, really tired, right? Is there some personal obsession with, with solving this, right? And then your ability to bring the right team together. Um, this is another area where Silicon Valley has an advantage in density. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have incredible people across Canada, but in certain segments, we lack. We don't have that much, for example, go-to-market talent when it comes to enterprise software right? We don't have a lot of sales and marketing talent. And so when we're looking at these founders, where are you going to find these hires from? Are you, you know, myopically looking at your hometown? Or are you thinking, okay, this person in Toronto, this person in Montreal, this person in New York, you know, are you going where the talent is to build that championship team? Yeah, no, I think that's a good construction in terms of how you're adding value add and kind of the value beliefs that you had around the team. Um, the founders specifically, and the actual company and the ambitions that they have behind them. Those are kind of critical ingredients. Uh, the other question I get often, and I mean a lot, is how do I break into VC, specifically in Canada, since there's such a limited amount of VCs? Like, what would your best advice be for a person who's yeah. maybe making that transition or wants to get into the space? So this is going to sound a little strange. I think there's actually more opportunity to break into VC in Canada than there is in Silicon Valley. The reason why is because it boils down to competition. So many people in the Valley want to get into VC that the bar to enter is really high. If you want an entry level position, you had to have gone to Harvard Business School or you have to have an absolutely insane resume. Yeah. If yeah. you want to enter at a higher level, you needed to have had a pretty significant exit or you needed to have otherwise shown, you know, incredible capabilities. Right. There aren't a lot of genuine, genuine entry-level positions uh, available in, in the Valley. Outside of the Valley, and this is Canada and elsewhere, VC isn't that well-known as a career path. There's not that many people who are trying to get into it. And so there's actually a lot more entry-level positions. Like at Panache, we have several folks who we hire right out of school. Uh, and we actually have a little more of a diverse uh, group of, of um, you know, back office folks in the analyst segment and, and, and associates and things like that, where we're looking for people with different yeah. backgrounds. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say probably the number one thing that you can do if you want to explore VC is work at a start. And, and the simple reason for that is part of what we do is make investment decisions but a lot of what we do is help provide founders with advice and coaching and feedback and just, you know, a shoulder uh, when things get tough. And, you know, if you've never done any of those things, how good is your advice? Yeah, for and sure. And I think, you know, when, when we see, you know, VCs be problematic, it's, it's, and problematic is maybe a hard word, but we're, we're frustrated for founders often have frustrating experiences 
is VCs being very authoritative with their advice when they don't actually know what they're talking about. You know, yeah. They're telling you how to build a startup and they've never seen the inside of a startup because their last job was as a banker. Yeah. You know, and, and there's this disconnect there, yeah, particularly sure. at the that. early yeah. stage. Right. Right. So having that experience, knowing what it is like inside a startup and what it's like in a, in a, a scarce resource scenario where you're trying to figure that out is, is a really, really important piece, particularly at the early stage. Right. If you want to go into later stage, like Series B, Series C uh, types of funds, that's more of a financial background. Uh, which is going to be a far more mathematical. Like I will never in any world qualify to be a later stage VC. It's yeah. never going to happen. Model, uh, and that's okay. Kind of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. I totally feel like anything. Precedes more intuition and kind of evaluation around business uh, model and kind of the overall scope. And then we get into the later stage. Chris, thank you so much for being a part of this. Hope you enjoyed the experience. And uh, I'll, I'll give you a shout afterwards for just some feedback on the show. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it.